to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Our scripture reading today is taken from the prophet Isaiah. He's the third great prophet that we meet. We've met Elijah, and we've met Jeremiah, and today we meet Isaiah. Many people know Isaiah's name. His his book is right there at the beginning of all of the prophets, and it is long. 66 chapters in Isaiah. And a lot of us know Isaiah because he was the writer, the prophet, who was most quoted by the people who were trying to make sense about Jesus. In the New Testament, they always quoted the prophet Isaiah, so much so that that a lot of people think that Isaiah was writing about Jesus, which he really wasn't. But in a way... Isaiah imagined Jesus, and it's that imagination that I want to talk about today. Listen listen to these words from Isaiah, the prophet. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly. To Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her turn. Her penalty is paid. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven places shall become level and the rough places a plain. And then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. What do we know about this prophet Isaiah? To prophesy. The original Isaiah was called to prophecy just like Jeremiah by God. This is Mark Chagall's depiction of Isaiah's calling. God calls Isaiah by placing a burning coal on his lips. Isaiah's mouth is at once purified and a source of fire. Isaiah does what prophets do. 
He warns the leaders to be faithful to God, to not play games by making unholy alliances with other nations and other gods. Isaiah, much like Jeremiah, is a poet. You probably know by now that I love poetry. I'm hoping that you do too, or at least are tolerant of it. Poets turn words into electricity. Poets produce epiphanies, these fleeting moments of piercing clarity. Their work can be relentlessly critical and at the same time exquisitely beautiful. When a poet speaks about current events, it's not the just the facts, ma'am, monotone of the news, but their descriptions see through the events themselves to reveal something universal in our human condition. In the ninth chapter of Isaiah, the prophet writes a poem to mark the coronation of a new king. Just like we get excited every four years when a new leader rises into the office, this particular king offered great promise. And so Isaiah captures this pregnant promise in this coronation with the words, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of whom is Isaiah writing? Well, Hezekiah of Judah, right? Who ruled from 715 to 686. You remember Hezekiah. Well, who did you think he was talking about? It's the vivid quality of Isaiah's poetry that makes us see and feel and believe in that promise. Even today, we're excited about Hezekiah coming. Isaiah is the master of imagining what God's realm on earth will look like. Isaiah sees swords beaten into farm tools. He sees nations swearing off warfare forever. Isaiah imagines a wolf and a lamb lying next to each other. And he wonders about the day when there will be no more harm between creatures on God's holy mountain. What's the good of such impossible dreams? Sounds like a bunch of rose-colored glasses hippie stuff, doesn't it? But Isaiah is not a naive optimist. His visions of a peaceable kingdom and a just king are more ironic than idealistic. Every king that Isaiah sees in real life is a failure. 
and his gorgeous visions of God's will on earth as it is in heaven only serve to show us how far away is the reality that God intends from our own corrupted one. Isaiah sees the Assyrian armies overwhelm the northern kingdom of Israel in 701 BCE, and he can feel their hot breath at the gates of Jerusalem. Isaiah envisions the day that Jeremiah will witness in the flesh the end of the kingdom. By the end of Isaiah's original writing in the 39th chapter, if there is any hope at all left, it is that perhaps there will be a remnant of the faithful who are spared. Isaiah's prophetic career could have ended there, and it would have been a remarkable one. But something else that is equally remarkable happened after that. 150 years passed. The prophet Isaiah died, but his poetry remained. And indeed, there was a remnant of Judah, a remnant of God's covenant people, in exile in Babylon where Jeremiah told them to go to grieve and to lick their wounds, and to weep, and to plant gardens and eat their fruit. It was there, in the bleakness of the exile, that someone was still reading Isaiah's poems. Of course, the world was turning again, as it does. And by 550 BCE, the terrifying Babylonian empire had so weakened that from the east, that from the east a new empire emerged and Cyrus, the Persian king, ended the Babylonians' rule. Cyrus released Babylon's prisoners, including that remnant. And he allowed them after 70, 70 years to go home. that very moment, a new poet-theologian began writing to those exiles, and he speaks to those people who are still unsure and afraid, but his poetry is pulsing with power. It is filled with emotional intensity and intellectual breadth. When the poet speaks, He knows, like all poets know, that words can't make reality. But he trusts that the inadequacy uses words might somehow be transcended by the faith with which he uses them. And what does a poet say after 150 years that have brought death and despair and the sunset of hope, and the withering of divine promise. What word does the poet bring from the Lord? Comfort. 
Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term. Like a wedding vow. Like saying, I love you. The words themselves are laughable. Can words ever take the feelings that we have the whole universe of fears and dreams that lie behind our words, can they ever make them into something real? No, they can't. And yet if we don't speak specific words that draw our hidden intentions into public possibilities, then we will have nothing. And did not God create the world with words? Did not God speak the creation? And so must we. Isaiah's words say God is back. Whatever you thought before, God is here. Now, with a new power and a new determination, God's way of being with you, the beloveds in exile, is so radical. Isaiah dares to say that God is doing a new thing. You will go home to the home of your culture, the home of your ancestors, the home of your faith. And you will go home on a highway in the desert engineered by God's own hand. Fifteen times in as many chapters, second Isaiah uses the word create. His poetry becomes a second act of creation, a healing, a mending, a restoration. From the formless void and chaos of exile, the world is made new again in Isaiah's words, and God is at home within it. We have, we have seen all month long how important the prophets are to our understanding of how God chooses to be present in our world. The prophets speak truth to power when our leaders breach the covenant we have with God. And when we want to believe that things are always getting Better, the prophets say, You are not in control. They prepare us to face the loss that is coming and to have courage and to endure. But that is not all that the prophets do. The job of God's prophet is to give us, when we find ourselves living in uncertain times, a ground for hope. Walter Brueggemann, a scholar of the Hebrew Scriptures, speaks of the prophet's role in forming our social imagination. What is the shape and what is the quality of life that you are permitted to imagine in this world? Think of all the ways that your imagination is constrained by what pundits say is politically expedient by what economists say is good for the market, by what the Joneses next door judge as socially acceptable. 
The most important power that leaders have over us is not the power of the sword, but the power to fix the boundaries of your imagination. And leaders will always say, this is it. This is the full and the final order. No need to imagine anything beyond this. All we need are tweaks and small changes. But Brueggemann says, by capturing your imagination, leaders also take your future and your hope. But the prophet poet, you know, has a different agenda wielding words that set fire to your imagination, words that cut through the malaise and the despair, using symbols rooted deep in our communal memory, they liberate the hopes that we have long denied and suppressed. The poet sees and names this hope taking concrete form in the world around us. The prophet's words break the chains around our imagination of what life can be. And suddenly, it is not just words that point to the fullness of God's presence among us, but it is our very lives that become that fullness. There are three battleships. Their bow stems were made from the steel from the World Trade Center. It was all about taking revenge back to America's enemies. We counter that with the narrative of Jesus and and enemy love. And so I wanted to do a local response by turning guns into garden tools and kind of grow that out as a grassroots movement to change the way we deal with conflict. We were fortunate enough to meet Terry, who you can hear banging here in the background, that he's teaching us kind of the basics of blacksmithing. I've got about 30, 35 guns. I would rather see guns like what the police confiscate turned into tools, because they came from irreputable sources anyway. So we get most of our guns uh, from personal donations every now and then from police departments that have confiscated them. And uh, we have a, a blacksmith shop that's set up in my dad's bar and that we make a lot of our tools at. At events that we go to, we usually have extended periods of time where we can make tools to make most of our volunteer opportunities that we have to to run raw tools right now. We track every tool that we make back to the gun that it came from. So we want to have these two narratives on our website that people can see. There's a a family whose teenager decided to play Russian roulette with a kind of a collection of guns that he had gotten from friends' houses or things that, guns that weren't locked up basically, and uh, started pulling the trigger and one of them took his life. So we use those stories to try and connect people to, to these stories of grief, but also to uh, resources to help people dealing with suicidal thoughts and, and depression and other, other things that happen in our life that bring that to us. So Many people feel like raw tools is after their Second Amendment, but uh, when I feel like people are just missing the point when, when that's their main argument is our real... We want to make you feel like the Second Amendment is just kind of moot. Like, it doesn't matter if you have the right to own a gun. It's not in our tool belt. We don't need it to get through life. Um, I know there's a a huge uh, hunting culture that provides and and helps feed their family through that aspect, but that's a a completely different issue than what we're talking about with gun violence. We did an event there at La Plazita Institute that uh, works with youth, and we... 
we had some of their youth help us make tools um, out of guns that were confiscated in the Albuquerque area. And now those tools that we made with them will be used in the fields where they grow food, which is then purchased by the correctional facilities and the detention centers that other fellow youth are in. So it's a real beautiful full circle of, of reconciliation and reintegration and really restoration because that's what we're about is restoring people to the value uh, that we know they have and to make sure that society knows that they're valuable. We're realizing that the actual conversion of a gun to a garden tool is the, is the easy part and the hard part is the human element and how we deal with the conflict with each other. Isaiah 2.4 and Mark, Micah 4, 3-4 both speak to beating swords into plowshares and training for war no more. And Micah kind of adds another one on there about sitting under your own vine and your own fig tree without fear of anybody else, you know, of people passing by, your community. And I think that's, I think that's the end goal. Isaiah preached to the exiles of a world in which God's presence was not ironic, but inevitable. And while the world has kept on turning as it does, leaders rising and falling and laying claim to our imaginations, no one can forget Isaiah's words of the peaceable kingdom, of swords bent into plowshares, of a shoot springing from the stump of Jesse, of a highway in the wilderness, of people who sat in darkness who see a great light, and of a God who says, Fear not, I will be with you. Isaiah changed our imagination forever. Isaiah gave us back our future, a future in which God's reign on earth feels close enough to see, to hear, to touch and taste. And when they saw the young man from Nazareth standing up in the synagogue and unrolling the scroll of the prophet, and they heard him say, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for I have come to bring good news to the poor and release to the captives. And when he fed the hungry with good things and healed those who were sick in their bodies, and when he gave sight to those who could not see, and when he said, Come and follow me, for the kingdom of God is at hand, they knew it was true because they had seen it first in their mind's eye. It was just the way Isaiah imagined it would be.